Welcome to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film, Jaws, one minute at a time or thereabouts. I'm your co-host, MJ Smith. And I am Sarah Buddery, and it is just us this week, no guest to introduce, so we can get started uh, talking about this week's scene. Uh, The timestamp of the scene is from one hour, 16 minutes and 22 seconds to one hour, 17 minutes and 23 seconds. So just over the minute Mm -hmm. this time. And uh, this is where I mean, I don't want to be like we're still on the orca because uh, that is where we will be for the rest of the film. But uh, it's continuing over from from last week where we see. Quint starting to do battle with the the shark or whatever it is that has has taken bite um and he is barking orders at uh Brody and Hooper still and trying to reel in whatever has bitten uh but nothing nothing seems to be coming of it uh and then he starts to realize that something isn't quite right with this catch uh so this is a a very short description uh, of the episode and a pretty short scene for us to to talk about as well but as always there is there is plenty to dissect uh so let's uh yeah let's get started mj what did you notice in this week's scene i noticed that this is not the part with my favorite hooper line um which i thought <laughs> it was going to be um but i think it's coming up really quick um mm-hmm. <clears throat> because Hooper, or Hooper, Quinn, I did the same thing the guy from Universal did. <laughs> no, become the very thing you hate. Oh, no. Um, no, I failed. Uh, but uh, I corrected myself, unlike him. So I'm going to... Mm, mm-hmm. um, Pulled it back. Yep, yep. Uh, I There's a... There's a what am I trying to say? There's a um, a momentum to this scene that's really, really great uh, mm-hmm. that I noticed. It starts off very intense. Granted, we sort of cut in the middle of the action last week. Um, sort of. We cut at the beginning. So here we have like the, the end, the, the middle and the end of the action that started last week. But it's very short. Like you said, it's, it's about a minute, a minute and one second. But a lot, I feel it feels very chaotic. Like it feels like a lot of stuff happens in it, um, and then it just kind of fizzles out. And there's there's a there's actually a lot of tension in that, where it just kind of starts and and stops almost as soon as it starts. And you get this like it's very foreboding. Like you're just like things are too quiet now, given mm-hmm. how explosive and chaotic they just were. Um, and the tonal control of that is not easy to do in such a short amount of time. And I really like that. Mm. Yeah. I, when I first looked at the description for this scene, I was just like, have I given us enough to (laughs) to talk about in this week's scene? This could be one of those elusive, uh, shorter episodes where we don't have as much to talk about. But when I watched it, 
multiple times in preparation. I was like, actually, there is a lot of stuff in this, even if it is just sort of carrying over from what we talked about last week, where uh, when that sort of sh- when the shark first first bites or whatever it is takes takes a bite and you get that really loud sound of the the reel and Brody sort of you know doing his way when he gets the the rope correct hmm. um it's it goes from a lot of chaos and a lot of noise to much more stripped back in this in this moment it is much quieter even though Quint is still kind of yelling at everyone who is is near him uh you do get this sense of the tension still and continuing to build even though it is uh, a very different kind of tension to what we saw in in last week's scene with that sort of slow clicking of the reel and and Quint strapping himself in ready to to do battle it's it's very different and i one thing i noticed in this scene is how many different angles we get of the orca mm. and the effects of that and the, this is all in the in the editing and in the the brilliant camera work as well the effect we get from that seeing the orca from every angle is not just this sense of scale i think we talked about that last week and they do a really good job of making this boat look absolutely huge even though it is not that big really um compared to some boats and uh, there is moments as well, sort of like later in the film, where you get a real sense of, of claustrophobia as well, with these three being sort of like packed into this this small space. But the showing of uh, the orca from, you know, we get the, the the back of it, which is sort of where we start this bit, is that shot from uh, a slight distance, where you can sort of see the orca and the ocean in the background. We get several side-on shots as well. Close-ups with Brody and Quinn. A close-up with Hooper. We see the front of the boat with Hooper sort of just about visible over the top. Um, there's this sense that the the shark could be anywhere at any moment, which is the sort of thing that I, I took away from that. It's very subtle but brilliant editing and, and setting up of shots as well. Uh, to get this sense of of action and tension and suspense and these all these things happening and pieces moving as well in in what Quint is trying to do in reeling this shark, um, but also this idea that the shark is kind of outmaneuvering them at this point. Uh, we're seeing we're almost seeing the boat from all of the areas that the shark is seeing it from. We're not in like first shark perspective, but this sense that the shark, you know, it could be over here. It could be in front of them. It could be under the boat. It could be behind. We don't know because we can't see it. And I think that's so effectively done. I don't think I've ever really given this moment credit for how well it does that and until watching it this way. Yeah, uh, pun slightly intended. It's very fluid, right? Like, it, mm, it, and yeah. by, by which I mean, I think it really does convey the fact that they are on the water and the water can be unpredictable, not just mm. in terms of, um, you know, riding the ship in a, in the, in a particular direction, but just like, you don't know where this thing is. Like it, it does a very good job of really playing into the fear of like a lot of people who are scared of the ocean say they don't go in the ocean because you don't know what's under there. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what happens in this scene. We don't actually know that this is the shark. Yeah. Um, and we never find that out. Like, the movie never addresses whether or not this is actually the thing we're hunting or if it's just, you know, like a swordfish or something. Like, something else that, that, that could be, I don't know, a swordfish on the eastern seaboard. But, um, 
or just like a really big tuna or something like we don't know what it is we know it's an intense fight it's implied that it's probably the shark based on the editing at the beginning of the scene that we talked about last week with Hooper or with Qu- I did it again <laughs> with Quint with Quint locking eyes with the uh, the 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 real and you know the predator versus predator thing we had talked about. It's I think you could probably infer that it most likely is the shark, but you don't actually know, and that's kind of it's better because I feel like you probably have storyboarded out this big battle with the shark where you're cutting you're intercutting between what the shark's doing and what quint is doing and uh here you just see what quint is doing and so you're like hope he's got it right hope he's not doing this for no reason (laughs) yeah this is something that i i wish more films did now i guess Mm. particularly horror is just that there is so much to be said about what you can't see um, because it's leaving it all up to our imagination, and that is what is so effective about Jaws, and I'm, I'm sure this isn't the first time we've mentioned this as well, and probably not the last either, is when there is that uncertainty of, of not knowing where the threat is coming from, what the threat even is, it's so much scarier, there's so much more tension in this scene. I think that maybe the last time we talked about something similar is the... Um, with Charlie and Den Herder way back <laughs> in the mm. sort of beginning of the film where we we don't see the shark, but it is sort of, you know, implied that the, the dock or whatever, the, the thing that we see moving and turning, uh, that the shark is underneath that or, you know, somehow is sort of pulling that along with him. Um, but that scene has so much tension in it and is is quite loud and very obviously scary and tense because the score is really dialed up and um, everything is just that bit louder and you've got the shrieking and everything else. And this scene, I think, just as effectively deals with that tension and creating that, that chilling idea of not being able to see where the threat is or what the threat is at all. I think it's so it's so well done and this is something we will continue to see in the film as well. I think some of the, the the best and scariest bits of this film are where we don't see the shark at all. And weirdly, some criticize... Who criticizes Jaws? I know. But some people who do criticize it say, oh, I wish we saw the shark more because I think they're going at it from the perspective of like, this is a monster movie. And in a monster movie, if you don't see the monster for X amount of time, then it has, it has failed as a monster movie. Um, we know Jaws is not that. We know Jaws is much more of a, it's, it's about these characters. It's about this journey. Yes, it's about the shark, but it's so much more than that. So actually not seeing the shark that much is one of the better things about it because it gives space to these characters it gives the story space to breathe as well where it's not just all about you know how often can we show this shark how much can we show of this shark and i sometimes wonder i don't know if if you do as well mj about like what jaws would look like if it was made now so if this version of jaws didn't exist and we're not talking like a remake or anything but if they were to make jaws now would they do a similar thing or would they be showing as much of that shark as possible to try and get those extra those extra shocks or that extra kind of fear factor in i i feel like they would it would be over sharked 
uh, if they made if they made Jaws now. I think odds are probable that that would be the mm. case, but I think about if you gave Jaws, <clears throat> if you gave a Jaws remake to say Lee Winnell, I think mm. I think he would be uh, I think he'd be he'd be able to pull it off maybe of as far as like the 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 less is more because I think he did that in Invisible Man a lot mm. um, mm-hmm. where you know he. <laughs> He, I think I talked about this on the show before as a comparison of not showing a lot. It's easy to do because this guy's invisible. But <laughs> th- there's these great shots throughout that movie where he just shows a blank wall and your, you know, weird, dumb little lizard brain goes, I see him. He's totally there. <laughs> and it's just, you know, that all the setup was, was just like, we're bouncing light off this wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's very like, it's very effective because that movie's really good. Um, I think there's almost this thing that's been happening is is particularly in horror that I don't like currently um, where it just kind of explains everything to you. So I would almost be worried about the, the thematic elements suffering more than the actual monster elements because from, I haven't seen Candyman yet, but from what I've heard, it just like takes a lot of time to be like, this is what this means. And it's like, yeah, I've been, I've been watching the movie. I get it. Um, but I noticed that in uh, in The Empty Man, which is a movie I really enjoyed. It's a great movie. It's If you're in America, it's on HBO Max, and you absolutely should watch it. It is a two-and-a-half-hour horror movie, which I am usually not for, but uh, it's, it's really good. It's this really, like, slow burn mystery that becomes kind of psychedelic, but at the end, it just goes, like, way out of its way to explain itself and i could have done without that and so it even sucks that in a movie that i was not feeling that way about in the last 10 minutes it does that (laughs) that (laughs) and uh you know that's one of the things about jaws like here the like obviously we talked about the, the masculinity stuff last week and that's still obviously a little bit at play particularly in some of the behind the back shots of of quinn um (laughs) But I think here, more of the thematic weight is given to this group dynamics thing that we were talking about mm-hmm. um, a few weeks ago about, like, the, the storming, forming, norming, and performing things. Here, we, we're on the edge, right? We're, we're kind of coming out of storming and into to the norming, like the, and even a little bit of performing, right? Like, um, none of these things are necessarily mutually exclusive with each, with each other, but, like, this is the first time they've really all three had to work together to do something with the shark or, or something that's going to potentially help them take down the shark. And so in this scene, we see them, you know, Hooper's driving the boat, Brody's wetting the reel and just kind of trying to be out of the way as much as possible. And Quint's fighting the the, the creature on the end of the, the, the fishing pole. Um, so this is the first time we've seen them all three contribute towards the same common goal. And I think... Uh, you know, maybe a lesser movie or even a movie from now would be like, oh man, we had to come together to fight the shark right now, you know? And the movie never (laughs) does that, you know? It just is like, hey, this happened and we got to deal with it, uh, whether or not we want to work together or not. (laughs) Yeah, the the dynamics between the, the characters in Jaws just come so naturally, it feels, and... Another thing that I noticed with those sort of the shots that I was talking about of getting the orca from from every angle and all the different angles that we see of the boat, we see 
in a lot of those shots, kind of the three characters all at once as well. So when you're looking at it side on, you sort of see Hooper up the top and, and Quint grappling with the fishing rod at the back and, and Brody, like you said, just trying to stay out of the way or as, or be as helpful as he can. And one thing that I, I don't think I've ever noticed this before, but I really, really love it as just a, a very subtle uh, nod towards this, them starting to work as one unit thing is um it's when it's when Quint is yelling at Hooper and he says, uh, Hooper, you idiot, Starboard, ain't you watching it? Yeah. And when he turns to look at Hooper, uh, Brody turns to look at Hooper as well. And then in perfect synchronicity, they both then look back at the water at the exact same time. I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if that's just what, you know, happens, movie magic, whatever. But I... I like that <laughs> that sort of Brody being being behind Quint and sort of taking it all in and trying to be as helpful as possible, but this sense as well that they they are starting to work as a team now, whether they whether they like it or not, whether they would want to or not. Um, they are all have a part to play in in this scene, and mm-hmm. there's. Um, there's a great shot of the the three of them as well when um quint is uh saying about the shark and he says you know he's either very smart or very dumb and we see all three of them in in that shot at the same time as well so spielberg loves his kind of three shot uh particularly in jaws we've we've seen it a lot and we've talked about the power dynamics of that as well but that seems to have ever since they've got on the orca that seems to have gone out the window the uh the sort of the the person with the power being being on the right although you could argue because hooper is uh oh. up top and steering the ship not only is he sort of you know physically positioned higher up than they are he is also the furthest on the right as well so he has a a bigger role to play in this than perhaps you would think and Quint is getting so irate with Hooper because you know the the positioning of the boat and the movement of the boat is as important as what Quint is is doing with the the fishing rod at the back of the boat as well. So Quint really couldn't do this by himself. He's sort of been forced into this situation where he has uh, Brody and Hooper in tow. But I I he certainly would have had to have taken his his mate with him. Right? There's no way that he could have he could have tackled this on his own as much as he sort of gave that bravado before going out on the orca, you know, that this was, this was his job and he works alone and there's too many captains Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. Um, We see the, yeah, the, the sort of norming and performing as, as you said, the, the stage of the team building that we, that we're going to see develop um, in the rest of the film. Yeah. With how they are all working. I think it's more like they, I think it's more that they are norming and they're forced into performing. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so they, 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 they norm because they are forced into the performing step. But uh, either way, we see that, we see that dynamic change a little bit. And it's actually one of, if not the only time maybe that you're a little bit more understanding of the way Quint is barking orders at Hooper because you don't want <laughs> sure. him to lose the shark. Like maybe mm-hmm. he shouldn't have called him an idiot, but uh, you know, there is, part of you that when shit gets like that it can get kind of you know intense and so uh you know you obviously don't want them to lose the prey so you hear quint screaming at hooper like hey man like it's going a different direction now you got to pay attention to the way this you know this thing is very obvious it is 
a very long fishing rod. Um, <laughs> so just keep that in your sights and then turn the direction that that's going so we can keep this so we can keep this going. Now, I would also make that mistake. However, I didn't brag about having to pass basic seamanship earlier either. So, uh, you know, it's it's a little more understandable where you're like, what are you doing? You told me, like, you kind of, I put you to a test of tying a knot and you passed that. So you, you know what you're doing. Um, what's happening here, man? Uh, we can't afford you to be slipping up right here necessarily. Yeah, I, I noted uh, in my notes for this week's scene that I was really picking up on Hooper's silence. I think I wrote it down as he is like conspicuously silent because I think the last time we heard him talk was when he was yelling at Brody and was, you know, you can screw around with these and they're going to blow up um, with the tanks. And I went back and like got the timestamp of that and it's around, around an hour 13, 57, 56, 57, I think. Um, so in normal people watching this yes that is only two minutes ago um for us that was what three episodes ago i don't yeah. know that maybe two episodes actually that, that we sort of last got to talk about hooper speaking but i think it what you're saying there about how they're sort of forced into uh performing and and sort of working together to complete this task it's even more interesting to me then that that hooper doesn't speak at all um and you would think that he would kind of clap back to Quint a little bit because Quint is calling him an idiot and saying, you know, aren't you watching it? And, you know, do this, do that, basically. And we don't even get, like, an affirmation from Hooper, not even a, you know, all right, or, yeah, I've got it, nothing. Like, he he says absolutely nothing. So I was trying to sort of read into... I guess why he he doesn't say anything i maybe it is just the the showing quince dominance i mean this is something that we've we've spoken about like ever since they have got on the orca it has all been about quint showing his his dominance and and asserting that you know the boat is is his domain and they are on his on his boat his vessel and and he is very much in charge um, we've seen tension between Quint and Hooper as well with the sort of the, the crush off with the, the can and the cup. Um, and they've not sort of had the easiest of, of journeys so far, but is it, is, is Hooper annoyed? Is he just biting his tongue? Is he just, uh, an introvert and is having a bit of, you know, shut down introvert time and, and keeping himself to himself or is he so focused on the the job i guess that he is you know not feeling the need to say anything back to to quint it's just the kind of acceptance isn't it of i have my job to do up here and i'm i'm gonna do it and it's not too long until we see him sort of break a little bit but even yeah then, he, it's non- non-verbal. He, <laughs> he addresses it a little bit later um yeah <laughs> but he he also like i think you could almost argue maybe without maybe differently than the power he's actually separated from the group in this right like his sure, yeah his task is is uh a little it's a lot different but it's also he's not down there in the you know in the shit with them he's up top he's he separated himself from the group to kind of work on his his fancy shark tech up there with the the, the scuba gear and stuff like that and then 
piloting the boat. Um, so he's, you know, he's involved and it's obviously an important component of what happens in this scene. But for the most part, he's kind of hanging back doing his own thing until he's called to drive the boat. Mm. Um, so he, it almost seems like he's like, you know what? I just need to keep my distance from this guy and keep a low profile and hang out and I will get my gear together and when need be, I will drive the boat and that will be my job. And that is all I'm here to do. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, I mean, they're, they're all sort of figuring out how best to work with each other. And, um, we see it with Brody as well. He looks very out of his comfort zone still bless him. We see the sort of the, the synchronized, uh, head movements that I, <laughs> that I mentioned, but mm-hmm. the way he tries to like duck around Quint as well, when, when, um, the boat is sort of turning and, and the, the line is moving and Brody looks very uncomfortable sort of trying to make his <clears throat> way across the boat and, and stand behind Quint. And I think it's, I mean, obviously, you know, Quint tells him to stand there as well, but the fact that he is sort of taking a back seat, <laughs> he is positioning yeah. himself behind Quint and is like, this is the guy who knows what he is doing. I am lacking in all of the technique, equipment and skill to be able to do anything here. Uh, I might be the chief of police, but this is not this is not my area of expertise. So I'm just going to let this guy do his thing. Um and there's a there's a real difference in the way that Quint talks to to Brody and Hooper, and even though he, it's not a sort of he's not super nice to Brody and then really horrible to Hooper, I think it's just a difference in the 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 volume and the tone and the way he says things as well. And and granted, Hooper is further away, so yelling is is probably needed. Um, He's quite forgiving yet firm with Brody, I find. He's sort of, you know, like, you know, get behind me and then tells him not to put more water on. He says, you don't want to dr- <laughs> don't want you to drown me, which is a, a fun line as well. And then the the way he is yelling at Hooper is is very, very different. But the I find the dynamic between Hooper and Quint so interesting. The development of that throughout the film mm-hmm. is one of my favorite things about it because i think we said this previous actually they never have this moment of being like you know we're not so different you and i but that is that is where they end up with the you know the comparing scars and we'll we'll talk lots about that moment when we get to it because it's such a great moment but we we see them i mean you could talk about that you know that stages of of forming a team or whatever you could talk about that i think just exclusively with quint and and hooper mm-hmm. um and that's not to say that brody is in any way on, on the back seat in the latter half of the film as some people will try and have you believe um but the the real tension and the real sort of animosity exists between quint and hooper and this is not just out of nowhere this is something that we have had building for I mean, weeks in terms of us talking about it on the the podcast and sort of, you know, minutes and hours in the in the film sense, Um, because we've established that they are from complete opposite ends in terms of education, wealth, class, uh, beliefs, what they sort of think about sharks, everything. They could not be more different. So 
that animosity just exists naturally and then you know because hooper is is younger as well and quint is sort of of the older generation and and that is something that quint talks about frequently and these sort of you know young whippersnappers don't know what they're doing so we we've, we've had all of that build up in tension and now we are just seeing this the the quiet i think from hooper in this scene is is still giving me that tension between these characters because we are waiting for him to snap um i don't think we ever really i mean we see them sort of like almost come to blows like much much later in the film when when quint is you know near suicidal with his with his mission and the way he is handling the boat much later on in the film but yeah we hooper is we sort of see him crack a bit when he is is pulling the faces at, at quint which is uh, an excellent hooper moment so we'll save talking about it until it happens but he is just i guess quietly learning how to deal with this guy which from personal experience i am an introvert i am despite the fact i can talk on a podcast every week i am quieter i guess in social settings um and a lot of it is just figuring out other people and sort of working mm -hmm. out like when can i interject when is it appropriate to say something um and when you are working with someone who is a much brasher and louder character it can bring out the the best and worst i think in both parties when you are mm. you know two completely opposite ends um but for and maybe this is why I relate so much to, to Hooper as a character, I think we both do, um, is that he is just sort of like quietly getting on with his job, figuring out this guy, but also not backing down. He is he is gonna continue to to give back to Quint when it is when it is appropriate to do so. But yeah, I sorry, that's a, a long old ramble about how much I love this <laughs> this character dynamic between the two, but I think that it's moments like this that maybe don't get the the credit they deserve for sort of continuing uh, to show us that uh, development of their relationship, like specifically with Quint and Hooper. Yeah, there's like three elements, right? That 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 consist of, of any story, but we talk about them in movies a lot. Um, you have the story, you have the plot, which is different than the story, and then you have the characters, and you know. Movies are going to be driven by one of those three things. Usually, like, one of those three things is going to be the primary thing that drives it along. So, like, the plot is, like, literally the stuff that happens. By which I mean, like, <laughs> oh, this person goes here. Now they're here. Now they're, like, a very plot-driven story is something like Tenet, which has so much plot, there's almost no story. And there's so much plot... The main character doesn't even have a damn name, um, but uh, <laughs> he's just called the protagonist. Um, and that movie is just about a lot of stuff happening. And it's not disconnected, but it is more concerned with that stuff happening. Um, story is like, it's different from the plot in that it's the way all the plot stuff is connected together. Um, and then character is obviously like the character moments. And so ideally you want your scenes in your movie to drive at least one of those three elements forward in some way. And I think in Jaws, you see that happen better than almost any other movie. Um, because this scene, 
it doesn't really drive the plot forward. We don't switch locations. We don't get any real new information that we didn't have before. It doesn't really move the story forward. We're still on the boat. We're still looking for the shark. We're, you know, we're kind of where we were when we started this journey on the Orca. But these characters move forward quite a bit in this scene. And so there's a lot of, like, very subtle character development that happens just in this one little minute that we're talking about that, uh, like you said, I don't think we get it gets enough credit for because it's very subtle and it's very like it i feel like if you're watching it it can almost feel like a filler or connective tissue type of thing where it's like we haven't had an action beat in a while since the since the beach so this is how and and this is the early signal that we're going to start getting those types of actions uh and sort of closer to action scenes. Uh, I would hesitate to call almost anything in this movie an action scene, except for maybe the end. Um, but that's going to start happening with more frequency because we're like we're in it with the shark, right? Like the the only we we are in the shark's house, and you know we've talked about the easiest way to not get eaten by a shark is to not go in the water, right? And so uh, we we don't have that option anymore. We are on the water. We are where the shark is, and so. Um, because of that, interactions with the shark are going to become more frequent. And so um, this is an early signal of what's to come. So I guess it does in a way, but without you knowing it, it kind of shades in the story and the plot elements, but it's not the driving factor behind this. The driving factor behind this is these characters getting to know each other and how to work in these explosive situations better. And we see them over the course of the rest of the film improve every time until you know, at a great cost to themselves, but they do end up finding out how to defeat the shark. Mm. Yeah. I think this is why I love these early scenes on the on the orca so much. And despite the fact that we've got some of the, I guess, more well-known or more iconic moments, we are rapidly approaching the line that everyone knows uh, from Jaws, I think in two episodes time, maybe we we get to that. Um, so I feel like particularly when you've seen this film before and you know that moment is coming, perhaps these bits get get overlooked. Uh, everyone enjoys the the can crushing and that moment when Quint sort of like straps himself in and gets ready to do battle with the shark. But this this bit, and I think the next scene as well i think deserve the the same amount of credit really for what they do in terms of of character building and seeing the different ways that they are interacting with each other and yeah i guess i just had not really zeroed in on that much before particularly i think this this bit and like i said i was a bit worried that we wouldn't get that much <laughs> that much content out of this scene because it's light in in action there isn't even really that much much dialogue it is all quint in this scene as well i think we could say this is another quint monologue because he is the only person who <laughs> talks in this scene uh pretty much from from when the shark bites uh in last week's scene to uh quite a while i guess i think the hooper is the next person to speak after this when he sort of tells quint to to let it go um so it's very very quint heavy this bit quint essential if you will as we've uh we've we've coined the phrase in the last few weeks um but i mean uh, i'm gonna address the uh, elephant in the room again if you will about um 
some of the connotations yeah uh, the, <laughs> the the imagery i think it was this bit that i was thinking about last week when when i uh sort of mentioned the i'll just say it phallic connotations yeah. of 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 what quint is doing some of the shots like you said from from behind him and the way he is sort of like pulling back the the fishing rod and the the noises as well the sort of like grunting noises he is making i'm like Mm -hmm. yeah okay this film knows exactly what it is doing and it has a point and it is not i mean we you know we ended up very silly and giggly last week because we are children uh but the (laughs) the point of it in the film is not to be crass and one of the main things about jaws is its representations of masculinity and seeing all the different facets of that i guess and in in quint we have this sort of uh uber masculine very kind of like over the top i guess uh depiction of of masculinity and i think that that is why shots like that are are in the film um, to sort of get that across in a way that is, is uh, I don't I don't even want to call it subtle. I don't think it's very subtle actually. The way particularly in this scene, I think maybe a bit more in last week. But yeah, this 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 week's uh, bit is is not playing around with the um, the the fishing rod uh, yeah. connotations. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's it's not subtle, but it's not super duper on the nose either it's just it's this i don't know how he does it like i really am kind of at a loss sometimes when he does this because i feel like any other movie or any other in any other director's hands it would be super on the nose and like yeah it there there would be this like nudging like do you get it do you get it do you get it type of of tone to it and it's not there it just it feels very natural like that's obviously what would happen but then Mm. the way that he shoots it also brings home the, the the psychosexual connotation to it that is an mm. underlying theme of the film. Like, it's been there since the opening of the movie. Um, mm. So it's not, you know, he's not randomly introducing this aspect to the film, but he's done it so deftly that, that you just kind of, you don't bypass it, but you, you, like when you think about it, you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's, it's you just kind of accept it and it's not... Um, it's not in your face. It's not over the top. It's it's perfectly suited. I mean, it's it's you know, at the risk of sounding incredibly pretentious about it, I <laughs> guess it just feels very. It almost feels like, it feels like you know these, almost like like how older paintings are a lot of renderings of nude bodies. Like there's not a crass sexual element to a lot of those. Mm. Um, It's simply like studies in form and figure. And that's sort of how this feels where it's like, there's not a crassness to it. You know, like he's, you know, we don't see him doing like, uh, like, like sexual metaphor. Like this isn't the hangover on a boat, right? No. (laughs) Um, which, you know, if, if that were the case, then it, it definitely would be like, oh, I'm going to fuck that shark or whatever, right? But this isn't that. It's it's almost just an extension of what's on the page. And it's just like, mm. it's in service of that. And so to have this imagery in there, it feels at home. Like, it doesn't feel over the top. It doesn't feel gross. It doesn't feel crass. Like, it's not, it's not offensive, I think. 
Um, and that's it's not it's not meant to be. Um, so once again, I think it's the just this tonal control that Spielberg has that's like unmatched where he just he handles a theme that could be very not just off-putting but very like very it could be very off-putting to some audiences it could be very in your face in the hands of another director and it could just be like where'd that come from um Mm. you know we weren't really talking about this before and he completely blows past all three of those points to just be like yeah this is what happens like so you, it, it almost feels like it almost feels too cavalier where it's like hey man some stuff looks like dicks <laughs> i don't know what to tell you yeah <laughs> yeah i i am picturing like what nonsense they would make this <laughs> this scene into or this moment into if they if they made this film now or even if they just wanted to kind of like make that point more more obvious and i don't know my my brain as the sort of like the the modern idea or cinematic idea of masculinity is someone like jason statham and i mean they right. he was in the meg so he's done a she's done a shark film but like i feel like you you put him in that position or something and they would make a much bigger a bigger point out a, a bigger point of it like you said yeah. yeah this this isn't the hangover on a on a boat this <laughs> this is as as far away from that as you can get and all of the the ideas and the the things that we're talking about in terms of how it shows masculinity i mean the, these guys are not having a literal dick measuring contest because right. that <clears throat> would be wildly inappropriate to have in I guess any film, but <laughs> particularly yeah. here it would just it would seem insanely out of place but at the same time these these guys are all in a way trying to prove to each other what they can do what they can bring to the table what their skills are what part they have to play in this in this taking down of the shark because they are all going to be needed and required at some point and that was one of the the first points that we brought up in this episode really was that in seeing so much of the three characters in this just one minute from from all the different angles and you know that shot as well of of the three of them and there's quite a few of those that we get in this bit we we know that all of them are going to have a part to play otherwise why would they be there why would we have spent the the whole hour and a bit leading up to this point developing these characters if they if they weren't all going to have a part to play in in the rest of it and we put our we put ourselves in the the film as well these three guys are all kind of psyching each other out i guess and 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 figuring out where where they fit into this into this mission and and what they are going to bring to it and they all have very different skills and things to to contribute to it and all of them are going to be useful at some point but we are we are very much in the quint dominant part of the of the film and we we do stay here i think for for a little while until the others um sort of manage to (laughs) to step in a bit more and and i guess um quint opens himself up to to the others as well and is is uh more vulnerable with them as well i think that's that's another i mean we'll get to the indianapolis and we will spend many weeks talking about it um but and a reason why that scene is so great is not just because of the 
excellent monologue because it is the first time we are seeing Quint, who is this um, occasionally over-the-top, like, very manly man. We are seeing him in that moment be vulnerable mm. um, and showing some emotion and, and showing a side to him that we have we have never seen before. So that is part of the reason why that is so effective in sort of seeing those those walls coming down and these characters getting the chance to actually be vulnerable with e- each other as well um and that would wouldn't be anywhere near as effective if we didn't have these kind of like more overtly macho dick measuring moments in the in the film and yeah. it is handled so well i think i mean <laughs> we did get silly last week but you know yeah uh, <laughs> it happens uh <laughs> but i think that it's yeah it, look you know it's hard not to laugh about these things sometimes and also like we were trying to be like very professional podcasters and uh talk about it in a way that was analytical and it's uh you know what it's difficult sometimes <laughs> but also i feel like Every good podcast needs some dick jokes every once in a while, too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and some B-movie jokes. Oh, man. I I don't even remember how we got to, to that point, but what a joy. It was the weird thing somehow. is, Paul Newman figured into that somehow as well. <laughs> that was the missing link. That was the thing I was trying to yeah. work out about how we got from, from A to B-movie, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, A thing I realized while I was talking is that the three main guys from The Hangover, not a bad replacement uh, cast, actually. Let me look at them. (laughs) I'm picturing some of them and I'm like, okay, I can see. Who are we thinking as... uh, So Bradley Cooper is Quinn, uh, Ed Helms is Brody, and then Zach Galifianakis is Hooper. (laughs) I mean, that would be dreadful um because that's not a very good film um and they get worse but yeah now i'm looking at a picture um i can i can i can sort of see it particularly the um zach galifianakis as hooper yeah (laughs) i don't know if it's the the hair the beard but I, i see it Zach Galifianakis is Hooper, and then I think, like, now, like, Star is born Bradley Cooper as Quint would be real good. Oh, yeah. The accent, the sort of, like, I think where he could do is it. that accent Honestly, from? I think, I think he'd be able to pull it off because he has a bizarre accent in uh, Star is Born, actually. Yeah, um, right. The first time I saw that movie, I was like, what the, f- where is he from? <laughs> like, that, that sounds like he's doing every Southern accent at one time. <laughs> it sure does. Yeah. Yeah. I Wow. I can't get this idea out of my head now. But um. <laughs> Also, Ed Helms has the exact same head shape as Roy Scheider. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, his kind of character in The Hangover as well as just being the, the guy who is, I mean, Brody is a, a bit more sort of, um yeah <laughs> uh i don't know the word but not quite as uh scared of everything as uh ed helms is in the hangover um yeah but i can see that sort of he is very much the guy out of his comfort zone in mm-hmm. that film mm-hmm. well look this podcast brings the hangover is jaws guys <laughs> i don't know what to tell you the hangover is jaws um <laughs> 
did uh i mean i that seems like a, a wonderful place to finish up this episode i don't know if you had anything else on this scene. nope not not specifically on this scene though i will say that i bradley cooper is my go-to spielberg movie recast person it seems like because when he was younger i always thought he would make a good indiana jones as well so uh mm. I think I think I think that's all that to say. I think Bradley Cooper and Spielberg should work together at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be mad about that at all. Do you know, I think he could still do Indiana Jones. To be honest, I yeah, it depends what age you're going for. But yeah, yeah. I think you know. Well, I well before we go, here's here's MJ's Indiana Jones hot take. Where <laughs> I love those movies. But I think we have a real missed opportunity to not make him sort of the American James Bond, where I think we should have been recasting him every couple of years and just pumping those movies out. Um, like, you know, I don't think Spielberg needed to do all of them. I think we could have given some to Steven Summers. Like, he made, he basically made an Indiana Jones movie with The Mummy. Um, and that movie's great. So I I don't know. I just feel like... I feel like the, we should have done that with Indiana Jones and that could have been the, the American James Bond equivalent, but mm. we don't like recasting people uh, here <laughs> really like the, cause like, I feel like there's a precedence for it in, uh, in the UK with, you know, James Bond and Dr. Who. Sure. Um, and no one really seems to ever question that. Like everyone's like, Oh yeah, that's what, that's what these franchises do. Like everyone just mm. kind of accepts that that's what happens. So I, I feel like America missed the boat on that being indiana jones yeah i mean i don't know how controversial this is going to be or whether we're going to have people uh coming in our dms but i the only indiana jones film i would want to see in the future is one where they just recast and they i'm not saying like reboot because i i think those those films are are great they are you know beloved and all the rest of it i mean for the most part the fourth one sucks yeah um but the in in making the new one as well i mean harrison ford he doesn't want to be doing he doesn't want to be doing this anymore guys like he just wants to retire and be like a grumpy old man on his porch like that is you can tell that is what he wants to do now i don't know how he is going to be in the in the next indiana jones film but i just this you know whilst he's alive we have to keep him as as indiana jones thing i just don't get it I I feel like you could bring out another Indiana Jones film, cast someone different in it, or, you know, have it be part of the same franchise, but not about Indiana Jones. And I don't know. I just think that it needs to shake up. (laughs) I think you could still make an Indiana Jones. Those movies aren't connected to each other at all, basically. (laughs) Like, none of them really are, aside from the fact that, like, a couple people come back in the fourth one. But no one cares Mm. about the fourth one. So you don't, you could just ignore that one. Like... Mm. Um, which is why I do the, the, I think that the James Bond equivalent should happen too, because those movies for the most part, aren't particularly connected, um, yeah. until recently, which I think was a mistake, but anyway, um, <laughs> this isn't a James Bond podcast, but yeah, I think, I think, <laughs> I think recasting Indiana Jones is just being like, this is Indiana Jones now every like, I don't know, decade or so. Yeah. I'd, I'd be fine. And mm. we get more Indiana Jones movies and I love those movies. <laughs> Because it feels like they just they just keep making Indiana Jones adjacent films, which are not actually Indiana mm-hmm. Jones film. Just these sort of, I mean, even had it with the I know the Jumanji films were their own thing. Yeah. But basically, anything that you cast like The Rock in is, or you know, an adventure film that is 
in the jungle, near the jungle, in sort of like tropical uh, locations or whatever. It always owes a lot to the Indiana Jones films. And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to make all of these films. You could just make Indiana Jones films uh, and not have these million different franchises that are all just trying to be that one thing. Just, you know, just just recast it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fine. See, and you have that perspective because you come from the land of Doctor Who and James Bond. Like, it's just yeah. been... They're arguably the two biggest, you know, British franchises that have had a culture, a worldwide cultural impact. Do that. Mm. Yeah. Just have him regenerate. It's fine. You don't yeah. need to explain it. Yeah. He's got Alrighty. two hearts or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> because also. science. Deal yeah. with it. And a sonic whip. Uh <laughs> I would watch this. <laughs> Side note. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> well, this just becomes us uh, dreaming up our fancy Indiana Jones uh, spin-off uh, reboot scenarios. Uh, I think we shall wrap things up for now. Um, MJ, do you have anything that you would like to plug this week? Yes. Uh, Real Perspective Suicide Squad episode is out. I think... I think we're doing one on Shang-Chi, I think. I'm seeing it today, I think. Uh, so hopefully we do a, an episode on it because I'm kind of I'm MCU'd out. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm almost strictly watching it for to get an episode out of it. Um, and uh, although I've heard it's very good. So I, I am excited about that more than I once was and more than I certainly was for Black Widow, which is the first MCU film I skipped. Um, <laughs> and... There's also the interviews for the short film that a uh, bunch of Real Perspective adjacent and uh, co-hosts made, uh, but I was not a part of. So you can check those out, and we have a new logo. Um, so you can find it pretty easily, I think, on uh, iTunes and, and whatever your podcatcher is. I think we're on everything now. So um, yeah, Real Perspective, R-E-E-L Perspective. Nice. Uh, I have uh, nothing to plug now as I have no other podcast uh, currently, but maybe that will change at some point. Uh, So I will mention our competition that we have going on our um, our, on the podcast Twitter. So if you go to at Jaws for a minute uh, where you will find us, uh, you will see our pinned tweet is a competition to win some merch. Uh, And all you have to do is make sure you are following at Jaws for a minute on Twitter. That's us. And uh, retweet that pinned tweet, and that is uh, that is it. And today, uh, as uh, the episode is releasing, is the last day that you can enter that. Uh, so, tenth September is the the closing date. So, if you are listening to this after that, I'm very sorry, it is closed already. Um, but yes, last chance to to get in for that competition and try and win some merch. So, go and check that out. Um, so yep, follow us on uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, you can DM us uh, or contact us in any way you would like on Twitter. Um, and if you wanted to find us individually, I am at Sarah Buddery and MJ is at MJ Smith eight nine one. If you wanted to email us, you can do that also. We are Jules for a minute at gmail dot com. Um, we love hearing your uh, stories about Jaws or just your thoughts on the episodes in general. And just, yeah, it's always nice to get some some nice emails and we enjoy reading those very much. Uh, you can find our uh, logo designer. 
I realised we had his Twitter handle wrong on our show notes this whole time. So <laughs> I have corrected it because uh, he has two different ones. He is at Hex Ghosts on Twitter and at, at Hex Shadow on Instagram. Uh, so apologies, Alex, if we have uh, been saying that wrong this whole time, but I have now corrected that error. Uh, you can also go and say congratulations to Alex because he just got married. So from us as well at LJ Fam, congratulations, Alex. Yes. Um, on getting married. Uh, I was at the wedding, obviously. Uh, so <laughs> I had a, a grand old time uh, celebrating. So yeah, go and, go and give him your congratulations. I know he'd really appreciate that. Uh, and you can also find uh, Kristen, who did our theme song. She is at Kristen Falls Music on Instagram. And there you can find the link in her bio to purchase our theme song on Bandcamp. Uh, the link is also in our link tree on our Twitter bio, so you can find it in both places. Uh, a couple of ways you can support us. Uh, you can do that uh, for at no extra cost uh, to you by uh, rating, reviewing, subscribing on your podcatcher of choice. Um, that helps more people find us. It pushes us up the charts uh, and just is generally really nice to read your uh, reviews as well um, if you are enjoying the show. Uh, and if you are able to, then you can purchase some of our merchandise through Teepublic and Redbubble. That has the two designs that uh, Alex very kindly did for us. Uh, the link to both of those stores is in our Twitter bio also. Uh, and you can also support us through uh, coffee. So you can buy us, buy us a coffee, make a small donation through that. Um, and that is just nice to receive and really helps us out as well and uh, as a little incentive if you donate through that you will get a shout out on the show and you will also be entered into a contest uh, to win some merch uh, which we will draw when we hit our next donation goal and i think that is about it so uh, until next time it's jaws o'clock somewhere